who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Homoousios is the Greek word that was used in the Nicene Creed, which most strongly refuted the Arians. Homoousion is the word used whenever we say in the Creed that we confess that the Son is of one substance with the Father, or sometimes we've used a version that says of one essence with the Father. Underneath that is this Greek term, homoousios. And it simply means same substance. Homo being same, ousion is essence or substance. We confess that Christ has the exact same nature as his Father. And the Arians didn't like this. They believed in homoousion, which is not the same substance, but a similar substance. He's like his father, but they are not exactly the same. And so that's why, to refute the Arians, we confess that he is of the same substance. He shares the same exact essence. This is sometimes referred to in fancy theological terms as consubstantiality. Now, that word is much longer than it actually is complicated. It sounds complicated, but it's really not. The prefix con comes from the Latin term, which simply means with. Right? So if you have confidence, that's confide, Latin with faith, it means with. So con is with, and then substance, substantiality, with substance. So when we say that Christ is consubstantial with his Father, we're saying he is homoousion. He is of the same nature, the same essence. That's what we learned last week. But today is Christmas Eve. It's the last Advent, the last Sunday of Advent, and so it is now time to focus on what is really the central message of Christmas, which is that the second person of the Trinity, who is consubstantial with God, became consubstantial with man. Today we focus on the incarnation of the Word, the birth of the Son of God. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25? Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. When you have found it, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew, the first chapter, beginning in verse 18, thus saith the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph... Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. This is one of only two nativity accounts that we have in our Bibles. Only Matthew and Luke contain any historical account of Jesus' birth. And the accounts are surprisingly very different. 
They're not contradictory, but they just emphasize and focus on different things. They're very, very different accounts, which is kind of a good thing, right? I want to know more, not less, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And one of the primary differences between Matthew and Luke is sort of who the story focuses on. So if you read Luke chapter 1 and 2, Mary is kind of the focus. And we see the angel appear to Mary and tell her, uh, commission her to be the mother of God. And we see Mary's very courageous and faithful act to accept that huge responsibility. Yet Matthew is instead focusing on Mary's husband, Joseph. Matthew focuses on a Joseph who, coming to learn from an angel miraculously in a dream that Mary is not, in fact, the adulterer he sort of understandably assumed her to be. In Luke, Mary is called to be the mother of God by an angel, yet here in Matthew, Joseph is called to be Mary's husband and Jesus' legal guardian, his adopted father. But while these accounts definitely sort of put Mary and Joseph on different focus, one thing that is very, very clear and common to the accounts is that Mary, neither Mary nor Joseph is what the story is about. This, Matthew chapter 1 is not about Joseph. It's not about Mary, and neither is Luke 1 or Luke 2. Both of them are about Jesus Christ. He is the center of this story. The birth of God's Son, what we call at Christmas time, well, not just at Christmas time, what we always refer to as the Incarnation. That's what Christmas is about. That's what this passage is about. It's about the incarnation, the birth of the Son of God. And so I want us to look at that term, and I want us to ask and answer three questions today. What is the incarnation? How did it happen? And why did it happen? What is it? How is it? And why is it? So let's begin with the what. What is the incarnation? Look at verse 18 with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The word incarnation literally means, its literal definition means to become flesh. That's why in the East they believe in reincarnation. You take on a new flesh, right? Incarnation means to become flesh. So if you want a short and easy answer to this big theological question, what is the incarnation? You could define it as the event whereby the Son of God became flesh. It's that simple. As a matter of fact, this is exactly how the Gospel of John defines it. In John 1, 14, when John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John defines the incarnation as when the Son of God, the only Son of God, His Word, took on flesh. His Word became flesh. But perhaps it's more specific to help people truly understand what this means. I think we can actually be a little bit more specific than simply saying to take on flesh. And the creed does that. The creed doesn't just say he took on flesh. The creed specifically says that he was made man. But if John says flesh, why did the creed change it? Why did they change the Bible, so to speak, to say man? Well, the creed is simply just trying to give a little bit more detail in what we mean by flesh. Certainly, what Matthew would go on to mean by flesh. Because what we want to understand, when we say that the Word became flesh, we, the, the danger for us in our sort of modern 21st century way of using words is to think that Jesus merely took on a body. 
The dangerous thinking is that we have this divine spirit and this sort of costume was created and he stepped into the costume. So we've got a human body with a divine spirit inside of it controlling it. That's the danger because that's not the incarnation. Women do not conceive bodies. They conceive people. Women do not bear the body of a son. They bear a son. Jesus Christ did not become a body. He became a son. He became a human being. And we have to state this clearly because of that temptation to think of him as merely a spirit within a body. And by the way, this is more than just an incidental accident that some people have. Historically, there have been heretical groups who have proactively taught this. The primary group is known as Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism was an early church heresy that taught that Jesus had a human body, but he did not have a human soul. He didn't have a human mind because that's the Son of God. That's the divine spirit operating in that role. So Jesus was a divine soul with a human body only. And this is a tragic error because what it does is it ends up denying the true and complete humanity of Christ. So you see, what we have to do when we read our Bibles, when we see that term flesh, we have to understand that it's what we call a synecdoche. And that's not a theological term, that's a literary term. That's just an English term. We use synecdoches all the time. What is a synecdoche? I'll take you back to grade school for a moment. A synecdoche is a figure of speech wherein the part of something represents the whole of something. So here's a, an example I would use. Let's say that one of your church fellow church members invited you over for a Christmas party this afternoon and you go to their house and they offer you something to drink and you'll say, I'll have a can of soda, please. Do they take out of the fridge, open it up, pour out all the liquid and then hand it to you? Because after all, you only asked for the can. You didn't ask for the liquid, you just asked for a can of soda, a can of Coke, right? No, we understand that when you ask for a can, that, that part is representing the whole drink. I want the whole drink, but I'm just going to say the can. We do the same thing if I'm carrying a bunch of stuff to the party and I can't get the door and I say, could you give me a hand? It might require two hands. It might require your legs. It might require your whole body, but your hand is representing your whole person. So when we say that Christ took on flesh, we are not merely saying he took on a biological element. We're saying he became a human person. Flesh, soul, spirit. He became a full and complete human being. Because in scripture, flesh and blood represents humanity in its pre-glorified weakness. And that's what Jesus took on. And we see that all throughout the New Testament proved in multiple ways. We see him grow tired. He has to rest. He has to take naps. We see him get hungry. This is someone who has a real human body. But more than a body, we see him demonstrate aspects of human souls. He gets discouraged. On the night of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples that he is in deep anguish. That's a human soul. God doesn't feel anguish. Humans feel anguish. Jesus had fear. He had worry. When Lazarus died, he wept. That's not a bodily condition. That's a spiritual. That's an emotional. That's a soul condition. Jesus did ha he had more than a body. 
He had a human soul. He became a full human being just as much as you and I are. This is all implicit in the fact that he is referred to as a son, that he is conceived. It's implicit as well. Turn back in our text to verses 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... It's going to be important. We'll come back to that. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, what are we emphasizing here? Jesus went through a process of conception. He went through a process of conception. That's what human beings go through. That's how human beings are made. He is a son who was conceived. He's a human being. He's not just a body that floated down from heaven. He is a human being conceived and made in his mother's womb. He is just as much a human as you and I are. And if you, if you, you don't like the fact that I'm arguing implicitly, then let me give you something explicit from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The incarnation is when God becomes exactly what we are. He takes on the same things that we have. Do you have a body? Then he has a body. Do you have a mind? Well, then he has a mind. Do you have a human soul? Well, then he has a human soul. In order to be truly man, in order to truly sympathize with us, in order to truly understand us, he had to actually be us, not just look like us. He became a human being. And this, by the way, this confession that we have, that Christ didn't just take on a body, that he became an actual human being. He came in the flesh. He came in humanity. This is not just some throwaway doctrine that we can disagree on. If you deny this, you are not saved. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. To deny the incarnation makes you the Antichrist. That's how serious this is. That's how serious Christmas is. However, there's actually more about the incarnation that we should qualify. Admittedly, the authors of our Nicene Creed did not break it open and explain it very much. Because, again, remember the historical context. The primary concern of the Creed was focusing on who was Jesus before his birth. Because the Arians argued that he was a created being who then came down. And so the primary point of the Creed was to say this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is an eternal divine person. So they don't get into the complexities of the incarnation. But there's been a lot of debate and struggle as to how to understand the Incarnation. Which is why after the Council of Nicaea, there was roughly three councils that needed to be met just to talk about the Incarnation. The Council of Ephesus was the first. The Council of Chalcedon was the second. And that one should sound familiar to you if you go to our church because the Creed of Chalcedon is one that we confess regularly in this church. And that Creed is not about the Godhead in general. It's just about how we understand 
the Incarnation. So while the Nicene Creed doesn't give a lot of details, because it's Christmas and we're trying to define what is meant when Matthew says son and conceived, let me just give us a couple of incarnational, kind of incarnation 101, okay? Some things to avoid when the thought pops into your head that the Son of God took on flesh, right? And here are two primary errors you must avoid in how you conceptualize that. The first one is that in the incarnation, there is no conversion. I'm going to give you two C's. In the incarnation, there is no conversion. So when we speak of God becoming a man, we have to be careful how we interpret that word become. Or the Nicene Creed says that he was made man. We have to be careful how we understand that term made. Because sometimes in the English language, we use words like become and made as synonymous with transformation. Something is converted from one thing into another. But Jesus' divinity was not converted into humanity. His divinity was not transformed, destroyed, and then remade into humanity. In other words, when Jesus became a man, nothing happened to his divinity. It was not altered. It was not changed. It was not converted. He did not lose his divinity in any way. He has always been what he was and always will be what he is. As the book of Hebrews says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So we must understand him to be both God and man truly and perfectly. Like, for example, you might read in the Gospel of John that Jesus made water into wine. That's conversion. Once you have wine, there's no water left over. That's not what we mean when we say God made God into man. There was no conversion. He's still fully God. He has not lost his divinity. He didn't lose one in order to gain the other. There's no conversion. There's also no confusion. There's no conversion. There's no confusion. We don't want to think of the incarnation as divinity and humanity mixing. Uh, one time I saw a pastor uh, bring props upstage and he actually used Plato. And he had Plato of one color, Plato of another color, and he mushed them together so that he had a whole new lump of a third new color. That's confusion. You confuse, you mix together. That's not the incarnation. We don't want to think the incarnation is God put the Son of God into a blender, and then he put humanity into a blender, and he shook it up, he mixed it all together, and then we are left with this new thing, this Jesus at the end of it. There was no mixing Jesus is not a demigod. He's not a half man, half God, quasi man. No, he is perfect man, perfect God. He is fully those things in every way. These things did not mix and create something new. And so the key language we use to avoid these errors, the key word is the word nature. In the incarnation, the word, the Son of God, assumed a human nature. That's what the word assumed means, by the way. It means to take on or to take in. When Jesus ascended into heaven, we also can call that as the assumption because heaven assumed him. When you assume the position, you take a position on, right? That's what the word means. Jesus assumed he took on a human nature into himself. And that word nature is vitally important because it protects us from all of the key er errors. It protects us from having to say that they mixed. No, because now we can just affirm he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. It protects us from saying that they converted because we're affirming that there is two natures in one person. And it even protects us from the main issue 
that the Council of Chalcedon met to describe, which is called Nestorianism, which Nestorius argued that, well, he didn't quite say it this way, but this is what his theology led to, that in the body of Jesus, there were two people. There were two persons. This idea that there's this divine Son of God, the Word, and then there's this human Jesus, and they came together. So that we have a human Jesus and a divine Son in one body. We have two persons in one body. That's wrong. Mary did not give birth to two people. Mary did not give birth to two sons. She conceived a child. She conceived a son. There is one Jesus. There is one Christ. So it is not two persons. The, the human nature Christ assumed was not its own person. He didn't assume a human person to himself. He assumed a human nature to himself. And so what we're left with is that Christ is one person with two natures, a full, complete human nature and a full, complete divine nature. This is hard for us to comprehend because we're not like that. You are one person with one nature, but you can conceptualize one person with two. Christ is one person with two natures, God and man. So if you wanted like a really technical, impress your friends at the Christmas party definition of the Incarnation. You could say the Incarnation is when the Son of God assumed a human nature into Himself. But it's probably better just to say the Son of God was made man. The Son of God became a human being. That's what the Incarnation is. I know that's a lot, but I hope that it's still somewhat clarifying for you. But the next question is equally important. How did it happen? I just went on talking about, goodness gracious, consubstantiality, no conversion, no confusion, no second person, human nature's assumptions. How does this happen? How does the divine take on a human nature? How is this possible? What caused this? Verses 18 through 20. Let's see if there's a blueprint. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The incarnation is a miraculous work wrought by the Holy Spirit of God. How did this happen? The answer is a miracle from the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Creed says. How did this happen? By the Holy Spirit. And I've got bad news for the more inquisitive among you. That's all the Bible gives us. That's how it happened. By the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery beyond our comprehension. God didn't reveal the details. He didn't explain it in blueprints. He didn't walk us through the metaphysics or the philosophy. He just tells us that this was a miracle that only God can perform and that only God did perform. It was the impossible made possible by the divine power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. The Holy Spirit did this. However, the creed does not point to the Holy Spirit alone. The creed tells us that there were two elements involved in this. The Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. As the creed says, he was incarnated not only by the Holy Spirit, but also of the Virgin Mary. This point is very, very important. It's very important. Jesus did not float down from heaven in an incarnational form. The Holy Spirit did not create him ex nihilo. 
from nothing. He was born of a woman, a virgin no less. Right? Again, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived from the womb of Mary before she and Joseph came together. So she was, he was conceived from a virgin. And by the way, the scriptures long ago prophesied that it would be a virgin. And that's why Matthew makes sure to safeguard this prophecy. Look at verses 23 through 25. Here's the prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's the prophecy. But here's the problem. Joseph and Mary came together after the conception. Because what does the prophecy prophesy in verse 23? It does not prophesy merely a virgin conception. The virgin will not only conceive, but she will also give birth. Jesus was not merely virginally conceived, he was virginally born. And that's what Matthew goes on to safeguard. Look at verse 20, uh, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. They, they, they finished the engagement process. They finished the marriage process. They've now fully married and they've moved in together. But they don't do what couples typically do when they move in together. What, notice what Joseph does or what he does not do. Verse 25. But knew her not until... She had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Mary and Joseph saved marital relations not only after the conception of Christ, but after the birth of Christ. Jesus was both conceived of and born from a virgin woman. And I think it would be beneficial for us to discuss why both of those elements are so important to the Christmas story. It is vitally important to see that he was not only born of a woman, but specifically born of a virgin woman. That's why both of these things make it into the creed. It's vitally important. First, it was necessary for our salvation that Jesus was born of a woman. It was crucial that Jesus be born of a woman. Paul tells us this very thing, by the way, in the book of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If Christ is not from a woman and under the law, he cannot redeem you and you cannot be adopted. Being born of Mary is necessary for our salvation. That Jesus was born of Mary matters so much because, as I said, he was not created ex nihilo. There actually were a group of, of heretics in some of the early centuries of the church who espoused that what happened was that the Holy Spirit created the human Jesus in heaven and then merely put that Jesus into Mary. We have an analogy for this today. We could, they thought of Mary as a surrogate mother. Jesus was made and then put into Mary. But Matthew does not teach us that she was a surrogate mother. She conceived him. The Holy Spirit did not just create Jesus and then make Mary a vessel. Jesus came from his mother's body. He has Mary's blood eternally flowing through his eternal veins. He has his mother's DNA, his mother's appearance. He is a true human being. And you, know what, you want to know why this matters? Because how does the angel address Joseph? Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. 
Why does that matter? You see, all throughout the Old Testament, we learned that the only way a Messiah could save us is he is a child of Adam and Eve. He has to be a human being from Adam and Eve. But not only that, then further promises was made, promised to Abraham that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. And then a promise was made to David, one of your descendants will sit on my throne. So we have Adam's nature, a promise to Abraham, a promise to David. If Jesus was just created ex nihilo and then put into Mary's body, he's a descendant of no one. He's not a son of David. He's not a son of Abraham. He's not of Adam's nature. Jesus came from Mary, which makes him a true child, a true descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a true person in Adam's nature. This is very important. He was not created and put into Mary. He was born of Mary, born of woman. And as we saw, it, was also, it also matters not just that she's a woman, but that she's a virgin. Not just any woman, it had to be a virgin. Why does that matter? Well, for starters, it matters simply for prophecy's sake, right? Verse 20, if he prophesied that a virgin would conceive, so if a virgin doesn't conceive the Messiah, then he's not the Messiah. So it certainly matters for prophecy's sake. But I think there's a reason underneath that. Why did God prophesy that? Why did God choose to give Christ to make her from, to make him from a virgin? Now, Matthew doesn't answer that question for us. But thankfully, Luke does. So keep your marker here and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke is actually going to provide two answers as to why the virgin woman is so important. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verse... Well, we'll read the whole narrative, but we're really going to focus on one verse. Let's read the whole narrative. It's Christmas. Verse 26. Or forgive me, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'm sorry. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's the Christmas story, but I want us to focus on verse 35. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. We've covered that already. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So there are two reasons why the Holy Spirit chose 
a virgin, according to Luke. The first one he gives us is his holiness. The virgin birth protects Christ from his, from, or for his holiness. Because if you remember, human beings, when you are born, you inherit something from your father Adam. It's called original sin. You inherit, first and foremost, his guilty status as he is your covenant head. So you are born a sinner. And you also inherit the corrupt nature, the sinful nature. He marred and destroyed human nature with his sin. And that destroyed nature is passed on to us. So we are, as David says in Psalm 51, conceived in sin. We are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. You are conceived in a guilty, sinful, broken state. But according to the prophecy of the Messiah, he had to be an unblemished lamb. He had to be perfect. So if Jesus is truly human, how does he avoid the fallen nature? How does he avoid the sinful, broken, guilty nature? Now Luke, like Matthew, he doesn't explain the details for us, but he just tells us that because he's virgin born, he is holy, he is sanctified, he is set apart. So we have to sort of do the the tough work to try to make sense of this. But you don't have to make sense of it. The answer is simple. Because he was born of a virgin, he avoided the inheritance of that sinful guilt. Now, if you want an answer, I can sort of speculate a little bit. Uh, Ironically, the early church fathers developed a theory that that, uh, original sin was passed through the male seed. And so since Jesus had no male seed, he couldn't have inherited that. I think that's a little more crass and biological than what the Bible means. But I do think that they're on to something. I do think that there is a general idea in which fathers pass Adam's guilt and corruption on to children. But I don't think it's so much biological. I think there's just this general understanding that because Christ was not begotten by a son of Adam, he is able to avoid Adam's headship and corruption. He, Yes, he shares in Adam's humanity through his mother. So he is a child of Adam in that sense. But he is not a son of Adam in the sense that Adam begot begot him. Adam and one of Adam's sons did the begetting. He avoided the begottenness of Adam. He is not begotten of Adam. He has the nature of Adam, but he is not begotten of Adam. In other words, um, what, what some people have said is that he is of Adam, but he is not from Adam. And so I think that because he is not of or from, or because he is not from Adam, he is not a begotten son of Adam, he avoided Adam's broken covenant and Adam's corrupt nature. That's why he came as the new Adam, Romans says. He's the new Adam. But you, you, if you want to connect the dots differently, then be my guest. But the point of scripture is clear. His virgin birth protects his holiness. If he isn't born of a virgin, he isn't holy and he can't save you. This is why the creed makes sure to put that in. He's born of a virgin. But there's another reason he gives us. What does he say at the end of verse 35? After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. According to this text, we could not call Jesus the Son of God if he were not virgin born. Now, it's of highest importance that I qualify what I just said. I want to be very clear. The virgin birth did not make Jesus the Son of God. This is what we learned last week. I'm not throwing everything out the window last week. He has always been God's son by nature. He was the son of God before he was conceived in Bethlehem. The virgin birth did not make him the son of God. But it still matters for a proper declaration and proof that he is the son of God. It would not be appropriate for the only son of God to have another father. 
Since Jesus does not have an earthly, natural father, we are further supported in our belief that he has a natural, heavenly father. His virgin birth proves and vindicates and establishes that he is the son of God. It doesn't create it, but it, it doesn't make him that, but it protects his sonship. It solidifies his sonship. It reaffirms his sonship. Jesus has no earthly father so that we are forced to admit who must his father be then? God. He is God's son because he is no one else's. The sonship is why Matthew attributes... By the way, in this, the, the proof of this, if you want the proof of this, is because what is his other title? He has a birth name. His birth name is Jesus. That's what they call him by his birth name. But he has an office. He has a title that they're also supposed to refer to him. And what is it? Go back to Matthew verse 23. Matthew 1 verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. It's, it's interesting. The term Emmanuel to, to Hebrews before the conception of Christ was a very generic term. To say, God be with us or God be with you. It's, you know, it's like when we, if we were to say, yeah, I'm going on a trip. Hey, may God be with you. We're not talking about an incarnation. We're just saying, may the presence and protection of God be with you. That's how they understood it. And Jesus takes this phrase and he literalizes it. He makes it literal. God is no longer with us in merely a spiritual overprotection sense. God is literally among us. But here's the point. We cannot refer to Jesus as Emmanuel if he is not the Son of God, if he does not have God's nature. He cannot be God with us if he is God. So Matthew certainly understands that the Emmanuel was Emmanuel before his conception because you can't become God. God is eternal. If Jesus is the God with us, then he's eternally of God. So I want to be very clear, the birth of the virgin birth did not make him the son of God, but it established and vindicated it. It would be highly inappropriate for God's son to have a father. God's son has no father, but God alone. Now, although I'm going slower than I should, but we have one more very important question to ask. We learned what the incarnation is, that God became flesh. We learned how it happened by the power of the Spirit and of the Virgin Mary. We need to ask the really important question. Why? Why did God do this? Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why did the incarnation happen? The, uh, the answer, according to Matthew, is simple. Jesus became incarnate for salvation. Christmas is special because we celebrate God becoming man in order to save man. God sent his son into the world to save his people, to save his elect people. Now, herein lies another interesting difference between Matthew 1 and our creed, though. If Matthew says that, that God sent Jesus in the world to save his people, why does the creed say, for us men and for our salvation? Well, the creed is, again, not contradicting Matthew, but it's trying to provide that ever important qualification that Matthew would eventually go on to make which is a new understanding of precisely who the people of God are. You see when the angel told Joshua or forgive me, Joseph, that God will save his people, what, what image came in Joseph's head when he heard God's people, the Jews 
In the Old Testament, when you said the people of God, you were talking about the nation of Israel. When you talked about the kingdom of God, you were talking about the nation of Israel. So the first understanding is that he came to save Israel. He came to save the Jews. But Jesus Christ himself and the rest of the New Testament itself transforms our understanding of who the people of God are. The creed reflects how Matthew and all the other gospels and the entire New Testament redefines who the people of God are because we now know that people are elected from every nation and that they enter into this family not by who their grandfather is, not by their skin color, but by faith. Jesus does not save people based on your ancestry DNA. He saves people according to their faith. He saves believers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And thus the creed says he became incarnate for us men. Not just for the Jews, for Jew and Gentile, for all mankind. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. That's why Christmas was never intended to be a new Jewish holiday. It's intended to be a global, universal holiday. It is good news for us all. It's the glorious and blessed celebration of the birth of our Lord. It is one we hope and pray that every person in every nation on the face of the earth will one day celebrate. Now, I understand that we've covered a lot of ground in answering our three questions. If you are desperate, like, Pastor, give me something simple. Well, how, what do I go home? What do I tell people we learned in church today? Just quote the Nicene Creed. What do I want you to take away from this message on this blessed Christmas Eve morning? That the Son of God, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Son of God was made man of the Virgin Mary by God's Spirit in order to save the world. So Merry Christmas.